0: Hello and welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly podcast. This podcast comes from a panel discussion that took place at the Building State Capability Program Symposium on October 30th, 2018. The panel discussion focused on how to mobilize political elites and citizens. As Salima Samji, director of the Building State Capability Program, asked Alice Evans, lecturer at King's College London, Rakesh Rajani, vice president of programs at CoImpact and Lily Tsai, faculty director and professor at MIT's Governance Lab, to share their experiences mobilizing both political elites and citizens to facilitate social change.
1: Thank you, everyone. Welcome to our panel on how to mobilize political elites and citizens. Today, we have with us. Alice Evans, who is a BSc associate and also a lecturer at King's College London. Mm-hmm. We have Lily Tsai, who is a professor of political science at MIT and the director, faculty director of the MIT Governance Lab. And we have Rakesh Rajani, who is the vice president of programs at CoImpact, formerly at the Ford Foundation, and then formed Tuawesa, some of you know him from there, and Haki Alimu is from where I know him from. Um, And we're really excited to have these panelists and to hear what they have to say. I wanted to just give you a brief uh, understanding of what it is that we were looking for in this panel. Um, We know that there's a lot of agendas out there that are really important, whether they may be at a global level, at a regional level, at a local level, that sometimes don't get on the agenda. And sometimes even when they do get on the agenda, nothing really happens. And so what we wanted to do is how do we understand, how do we mobilize citizens? How do we mobilize political elites to actually get these agendas on and things, and they actually get implemented and things actually happen? So what we did is we've given the panelists a series of questions to answer. Um, And they're basically, how does one think about mobilizing the attention for policies that should be on the agenda and those that are not on the agenda? I wanted them to share from their own experiences examples of what they've tried, what they've learned, how they may have done this in the past, what types of capabilities need to be built, and whose capability do we need to build. And then finally, we are at the Kennedy School what kind of capabilities do we need to instill in students here so that they are able to get these agenda items onto policy agendas and not just be on an agenda, but something actually happens, right, to get things done. So I wanted to start first with Alice. Um, Do you want to share from your experience?
2: So I think one example of some kind of change that's really hard to mobilize is if it's concern for distant others so not people's everyday priorities. Two, if you perceive there as being strong, coordinated opposition. And three, if there's widespread despondency, if people think it's doomed to failure. And uh, an example of that that I've been studying recently is corporate accountability in the UK, Europe, and wider USA. So this is concern for labor rights abuses in global supply chains, you know, distant others in Bangladesh or Vietnam, where there's strong business opposition. you know, In any country, it will be tremendously hard to introduce legislation, increasing liabilities on our companies, because they would immediately cry to say, if you make things harder for us, we'll become less internationally competitive, so we'll go elsewhere. So there will always be strong business opposition. Three is, if we never see that kind of change happening, NGOs might think it's not possible. So instead of investing in that kind of activism, they opt for a second-best scenario, so work with companies to improve CSR, even though we know CSR does very little to abate problems like Rana Plaza. So I'd say one of the hardest problems would be trying to get corporate accountability for those reasons.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, did you want to answer all the questions? Oh, yes, 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 okay, okay. <laughs> but, but, here's the, here's the exciting thing.
3: <laughs> Ooh,
2: go, Alice. As of 2018, All large French companies are now legally obliged to identify and reduce risks of human rights abuses in their supply chains. And if they fail to do this, and if abuse happens, then they'll be taken to court and they can be sued. And the exact sim- uh, similarly in Switzerland, this year in July, the National Council voted in support for similar legislation. We've now seen new campaigns opening up in Finland, in Denmark, Canada, they've just been the International Development Committee has just had a parliamentary motion calling for similar legislation. So why did this happen? How did mm-hmm. we come to mobilize people for change despite these huge obstacles? One is journalists publicizing crises, eroding the legitimacy of the status quo, getting people concerned that our companies were perpetuating these harms, that CSR just isn't working. So one, the journalists. (coughs) Two is providing credible reasons for hope by showing that corporate accountability is the direction of travel. So in both France and Switzerland, they pointed to various examples and ways in which this was happening. So they pointed to Dodd-Frank, where there's a clause about conflict minerals. They pointed to some aspects of the Canadian legislation. The French campaign, the French legislation, has emboldened activists in Switzerland. So people seeing that it's possible, that it's credible, and getting companies to think that this is the way that we're going. So providing credible reasons for hope, for showing that this was the international agenda. And incredibly importantly, here at the Kennedy School, John Ruggie played a phenomenally important part of this. So John Ruggie was part of the UN Global Norms, where they were introducing this voluntary idea of due diligence. So they were setting up the idea that it was a voluntary mechanism, just advising and encouraging companies to identify and reduce risks of human rights abuses. That wasn't mandatory. But by making it voluntary, it was not threatening. Everyone got on board with it. Everyone came to understand. And it was a very participatory, inclusive meetings. And so by being this sort of non-threatening, consultative, inclusive process, more companies and governments engage with this idea of due diligence. Then the French campaigners strategically use that Idea which had widespread support, and said, "Right, let's turn this into legislation." But to do that, what they needed is a broad coalition. So they worked with a broad range of environmental activists, with development NGOs, with Catholic churches. They got a whole group of legal activists through legal minds, you know, to work through the legislation. Consumer groups. They got all these brilliant people together, tapped into their networks. And the same is true in Switzerland. So the Swiss campaign is the largest civil society campaign ever, and they've manage to do it by having like over 120 NGOs all collectively working. What they do in Switzerland is they are careful not to portray it or present it as a niche left-wing environmental campaign. (laughs) They purposefully (laughs) amplify right-wing support. So there are some right-wing groups or there are religious groups or there are business groups. They say, we've got 100 businesses on board. Now most of these are actually vegan ice cream companies. <laughs> True story. <laughs> but, but the point is, we've got these businesses on board, right? And so you make it seem like it's a broad, you know, socially inclusive agenda. So the broad coalition publicising reasons for hope, you know, tackling that despondency, because showing it's the international direction of travel does two things. One is it raises aspirations, You know, it raises our expectations, so people come to, we, we only invest in things if we believe that it's possible. If we think it's doomed to failure, we're not gonna do it, we're not gonna even try. And that despondency you know, creates the negative feedback loop. But once we think it's possible, then governments and politicians become less worried about undermining their company's competitive advantage because they no longer think that companies will go elsewhere because other countries are likely to have similar legislation. So those three things were important. Um, So what we need to do then, for me, it's partly about shifting expectations, providing credible reasons for hope, for getting us to think that we can achieve these things by highlighting examples of successful mobilization and responsive governance. Now, what can we do? What can students do? How can we support our students to go into the world and mobilize change? Mm -hmm. Right, okay. I'm sure you're doing some of these things already. If it was me, I... And it is me, right, as a lecturer in my own... What I think is three things. One, encourage and support my students so they are equipped, capable, and ready to work with diverse groups. You know, that was really key in the Swiss campaign and also the French campaign. Working from all, with, with academics, with, with lawyers, with environmental activists, recognising that we... Gr- Gain strength through the diversity, tapping into different, so being ready for that. Two, being skilled in mass communications. Like the other day with my students, oh. we were writing blogs, you know, mass communications, that's key. Um, and, and I think learning through the sort of success of comparative social movements, learning why some process of mobilization are more successful than others. Great, thank you.
3: Lily? <laughs> <laughs> I strongly recommend you go with Recaptures. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like only a hundredth of as an- animated <laughs> People need balance. People need balance. Balance, balance. Really okay. balance is good. Balance is good. Um, <laughs> so like taking it down a huge notch <laughs> in, in energy. <laughs> um, I guess I wanted to start. I mean, actually, I'm going to pick up on a lot of the points yeah. that Alice has just raised and Alice raised this morning in terms of um, and, and specifically this like uh, um, this idea of um, starting with feeling like you're doomed to fail. So I guess one thing that I know as a political scientist is that mobilizing um, attention from citizens, and elites for that matter, but mobilizing attention is different from mobilizing action. Um, And we know that um, you can get citizens to increase the salience of an issue for them, like to care more about a policy. You can get politicians to run on policy platforms so it's more about substance rather than anything else. But nevertheless, Issue salience is not the main factor, not a main predictor in whether or not citizens take action. Um, things like party identification are much more important. Or, you know, as my colleague Danny Hidalgo, who studies Brazil, points out, there are in the developing world um, different equivalents to party ID. So in Brazil, it's loyalty to a political family. Um, so those things are way more important for determining action. Um, so I just want to, you know, underscore that ordinary people increase attention um, to these issues that we care about, but they don't necessarily take action, and so why? And so here, again, picking up on some of the things that have been already um, raised by Alice, I would argue that too often we try to mobilize the action of citizens without mobilizing the actions of elites. Um, And so I would argue that both in terms of my own work and um, the existing research um, out there, that it's really, it is perhaps really important to mobilize elites first, number one, because I've started to become really uncomfortable with how external actors seek to mobilize the actions of citizens without, without knowing or being, you know, having a degree of confidence that elites will respond. Um, so I think I actually would would put it forward that it can be somewhat unethical to mobilize the action mm. of ordinary mm. citizens to mm. advocate mm. for these issues mm-hmm. when you don't know or you don't have a pretty good idea that elites will also mm. take action and respond. Mm. Um, but second, also because if you don't mobilize elite action first or you don't have that lined up, mm-hmm. um, citizens are just going to stop taking action. Because yep. um, um, what's, you know the research shows that that Instead, when you don't get elite response to citizen action, you get disillusionment, disenchantment, and exit. And moreover, it's highly informed disillusionment. So it's they—they um, they like uh, they're very, very disillusioned uh, because they know they've like experienced it firsthand, <laughs> like the disappointment. Um, so um, you know, I think that we can all come up with. Examples of this, um, I've recently thought a lot about and written about um, the anti-corruption campaigns that have happened um, after the fall of communism. Um, so, you know, those of you who remember that, um, there was a rise of international anti-corruption advocacy campaigns, and um, you know, I think it is—it's very easy to make the case that they might have done more harm than good. Um, they changed. They did. They did politicize the issue of corruption, um, and they put anti-corruption on the agenda and good governance on the agenda, but because the um, EU, for example, in Eastern Europe, the EU required um, Eastern European countries to set up anti-corruption institutions um, as a condition for accession to the EU, um, there was this external pressure. Um, these institutions were set up, but but what. But what didn't happen is that external actors did not make sure that the elites were going to enforce um, and so without enforcement what happened was politics was um is that a question oh, yeah. <laughs> okay <laughs> sorry just want do i yeah, just want to give the opportunity to like so um so what happened was politics got um it became all about corruption and anti-corruption and political parties were able to use um anti-corruption as a an, a key issue to accuse the other side so you know, in the case of Romania, for example, opposition parties banded together to accuse the president of corruption. They started impeachment proceedings. Um, you know, there are high-profile investigations on both sides. There's no, in, there's, no, there's, no, there's no prosecution, right? And so as a result, citizens in Romania are like, this is just something that the politicians use to, you know, accuse each other. And, and politics continues to be about corruption and anti-corruption, but without much change, um, which just leads to a declining public trust in the political process. So um, so I guess, you know, one thing that I've been cautioning um, practitioners nowadays is that that is, that is an, a pretty instructive case for the current movement to advocate for anti-corruption. And the more international initiatives um, that happen to try to put corruption and good governance on the agenda, you know, they should take it into account these historical um, lessons. Um, so, uh, let's see, in terms of... What kinds of capabilities need to be developed to bring these issues onto the policy agendas, and whose capabilities need to be developed? Um, I mean, and keep in along the same line of reasoning. You know, I think that it would be important to develop the capabilities um, of external actors to work on um, uh, getting reformist elites and reformist activists on the societal side to mobilize um, attention and action simultaneously. And in fact, you know, perhaps setting up the Government response first, lining it up first, and then um, and, and then mobilizing action. It's a little bit like capital campaigns in universities, you know. So that you raise like 800 million dollars, and then you announce the capital campaign, <laughs> 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 and you're like, we're 80 percent of the way there. <laughs> um, so you know, just contribute. But that I mean, but it is a very similar kind of logic. And so um, you know, I just wanted to briefly go over some of the research that I've been doing. In China, um, where it is this um, priming the pump kind of strategy, um, you know, China, of course, I mean, not to romanticize or glamorize what China is doing because there are lots of potential problems, but um, but when citizens believe that um, higher levels will punish corruption and malfeasance. Um, what I find is that there's an associate that's associated with an increase of 13% in citizen participation. It's also increased, associated with an increase of more than 25% in the likelihood that they will complain to the government um, if there if grassroots elections were canceled. So that's a very high risk kind of engagement, basically. But when they see that higher levels are willing to take action, are willing to enforce then um, that actually stimulates more citizen action. And so I think that actually is an instructive example. Um, you know, you I, you arguably could see similar things happening in Rwanda. And of course, like, I, I come from this perspective of focusing on authoritarian regimes in a lot of my research. Um, I'm going to move on. I was going to go over a case um, in, in the Philippines as well. But, um, you know, I, I think it would be more important to. Um, have more of a conversation with the group. Um, so then what capabilities would we need to develop in students? I mean, again, I think it is this matter of like setting up some of the action and response by the other side or the government side first before mobilizing citizens. Um, and, you know, I think there is an increasing amount of research, and maybe you all talk about this at the Kennedy School already. Um, as a political scientist, you know, we're still stuck in this framework where socii- the state needs to be insulated from society, that there is this, you know, thinking from Max Weber that... Um, there should not be personal relationships across the state society boundary. But um, I think there's an increasing amount of empirical research that suggests that, you know actually building these kinds of personal relationships, even having a revolving door between civil society and the state, can be um, can result in constructive outcomes rather than um, co-optation. So, I guess I would raise the possibility that it's important to develop the capability of being multilingual and multicultural in the sense of, Um, having experience both on the government side and the societal side or the civil society side. Because I think in order to be able to prime the pump and to line up that government response, um, if you're on the societal side, you have to be able to translate your goals into the other side's languages, um, concerns, and values. So that's what I would, yeah. Thank you. Rakesh?
0: All right. So I'm just going to tell two stories, and I think lots of the themes that Lily and Allison said I think you can use those as lenses. One's a story about primary education in Tanzania, where I, through Traweza, and the other is a story of something I supported through the Ford Foundation of a universal preschool in Cincinnati, Ohio. So, and I think, it's a little bit apples and oranges, but I still think they are insights that are useful. So, you know, education in Tanzania, primary education in Tanzania, like in many other Global South countries, I think you know the story. At independence, very few went to school because only the elite were meant to be educated, so in Tanzania it was less than 10 percent would come to school. So the story on what you did post-independence was around getting kids into school. And, and that involved a lot of money, so it was all about having enough money. Uh, in 10, 20 years after independence, when so much money was going for debt servicing, the story became, how do we cancel the debt, so reduce the debts so that we have actually enough money for the school. And the money was supposed to buy things that mattered, that I needed, like classrooms, desks, books, all these inputs. And and that captured the public imagination. And there was really a lot of consensus across. There, you know, maybe the IMF and the bank at times were outliers, but everybody else, you know, if you talk about um, teachers, kids, parents, local officials, members of parliament, the local governments, businesses, donors, media. Everybody agreed we needed schools and everybody should be in schools. And that's what we spent a lot of energy on. And in doing that, these, this story, this narrative, and these images around, what we need is everybody in school, and a good school is one that looks like this. You know, you can, it's easy to visualize what a classroom or a school is. You know, is what we've had for 50 years. And it succeeded, right? You did have debt cancellation. In fact, when I was a student here, right here at the Kennedy School, there was work on the, Epic uh, the that Jeffrey Sachs, one of the few good things he did then was uh, that. Uh, you know, so there was stuff that it actually succeeded. Uh, you know, we succeeded. Then Tanzania, for example, in the, in the course of a decade while I was working on this, tripled in real terms its budget on education. At that time, it was spending about a quarter of all its, you know, quarter of government budget went to education. We did build the classrooms. We did enroll millions of kids. So it actually succeeded. But now the problem is the kids are not learning. And we knew that, but it wasn't catching traction. So what did Traweza do, borrowing a model from India, is we did this simple test that measured actual literacy numeracy numerous levels, was lot of the people supported that. And um, we managed to show at a very large scale through this very simple test that kids, that schooling is not the same as learning. Um, and uh, we showed this data. And the data was was good, ro- simple, but robust. It could be verified, and it was it wasn't just Proxies, these were real measures of whether kids could write, I mean, read or or count. It would make a splash when the report was issued. There would be some headlines, but the initial view of the government was to just say, question the methodology, or just spurious kind of questioning. It wasn't taken seriously. The the test was repeated every year, every year. It would make some headlines. Eventually, the government kind of went along, but... Really, it was only the donors and a few NGOs like ourselves, not even the NGO community, that really bought into this. Even the other NGOs who bought this discourse felt, yeah, this matters, but let's also talk about there being enough books and enough desks and, and things of that sort. So, you know, we as Tuaweza did not manage to get a big coalition focused on these things, despite the evidence that pouring more money was not really into the results. Uh, and then there was a key breakthrough, at least we thought it was a breakthrough, uh, where the government was feeding a sense of crisis and they created something called the big results now, borrowing on a Malaysian model to say, the government is too messy, let's create this kind of vertical, high-level unit and we're gonna push through some big results. And we were very proud as Tua well, that we got to influence this. Um, it, the learning outcomes piece was the core focus, there was transparency on the data, there were rewards, the schools that did better, that improved the most, get rewards and so forth. Um, huge energy put into this so you could I could easily tell you a story now of great success of uh, because this was official government policy and it was rolled out and so forth. this happened two years be- before the previous president in the last two years of the previous president's term as soon as his term ended the current president even though he comes from the same ruling party abandoned this entire effort and the the coalition that had come together to work on the BRN, the Big Results Workshop, was too weak, too fragmented. They had no sense of identity, there's no sense of belonging, there's no sense that we are doing this, for this to last. So if you go to Tanzania today, um, it's really not focused on learning outcomes in any serious way. The government is not focused, the community is not focused. Parents. You know, we thought if we give data to parents around their kids are not learning and we gave them ideas of what you could do that they will get in, like, they have an incentive. It's their own kids, right? they'll do something. They didn't really do anything. Teachers were felt the feeling they were blamed and so forth. So, here's a story of where we, we had some level of elites agreeing. We even had policy pronouncements and so on. But in the end, when all it took was a little nudge from a new regime and the whole thing crumbled mm. and there really isn't much. Mm. Now, you know, I can tell you a story in a different way. There are pieces, but ultimately, there is no coalition focused on this. Now, let me quickly tell you the story of Cincinnati, Ohio. So in November 2016, Trump wins the election. He wins Ohio by 6 uh, or 8%. Right. So but at, in that same time, the same moment, the voters in Cincinnati passed a new tax for preschool by a margin of 24%. So, so, hold on, this, these are Trump voters who are also voting for, <laughs> by a 24% margin, you know, voting for a, a tax to pay for preschool. And essentially preschool for poor kids who happen to be much more lower income and happen to be disproportionately black. So how does, how, what's the story behind, what explains this? So I'm drawing on work by Harry Hahn, who's a political scientist that Lily and others have worked with. Uh, and so I'll, uh, let me give you a quick background. In 2001, there was a young black man who was uh, killed by the police. There was large civil unrest uh, as a result of that. Uh, Remember, Cincinnati has the second highest poverty rate of cities in the US, despite it having lots of Fortune 500 companies. If you do a per capita calculation, Cincinnati has more Fortune 500 companies than Boston, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. So the business leaders said, gosh, you know, we but we got to do something. I think a combination of being scared shitless about all the riots and, you know, maybe we had some responsibility. So they came together and, and they decided we really need to focus on early childhood. If we focus on early childhood and get the, it'll help. It'll help four people. It'll get them to do better. Maybe they'll riot less and we'll have peace. And they did a campaign and this involved like, you know, the CEO of Procter and Gamble, lots of big companies. And they did it through the United Way. United Way and these big businesses work and i for time I'll cut this long story but they work from 2003 to 2013 for 10 years high-level elite engagement in trying to do something in Cincinnati what did they achieve in summary they raised ten million dollars in ten years these are big companies and they managed to get 5,000 petition 5,000 signatures to a petition that's all they were able to do despite having a consensus at the elite level about trying to do this. And what happened is we once the riots died down, and so they, the commitments were there on paper, but there was no energy behind it to make this move. In the meantime, in 2014, a guy called uh, Troy Jackson became the executive director of a faith-based organization called AMOS, one of my favorite prophets, but that's a sidebar. And when he became an executive director, what he did was he went and had 100 meetings with people in his constituency, face-to-face meetings. And when he talked to them about what's going on in some, they all talk rather, a lot of them talk about their children and this issue of preschool education, the same thing that these elites had identified more than 10 years ago, came up as the core. So what he did is he said, okay, let's start working on this, but the way I want to work on this, and I'm quoting Harry here, is that I want to do this in a way that builds the interest, capacities, and leaderships of leadership in my constituency. So it's not like I listen and I'm going to figure out the solution for you. He he proceeded to work in a way that involved his constituents and built their leadership. They went house to house, engaged over 1,000 people, over um, 60 churches were involved. Um, While this was going on, there's a church in Cincinnati called Crossroads Church. It's an evangelical church, more than 80% white. It's the largest, it's the fastest growing evangelical church in the United States. Its growth rate is, you know, it still is very fast growing. And like I said, mostly white, but not entirely. And there, remember, in 2015, we had all these rash of shootings by police of black men. So there was a pastor, an associate pastor, African-American, who said, have got to do something here. So what, what, what do I do? You know, I'm with a largely evangelical white church. So he um, went to Troy Jackson, the head of uh, Amos, and said, help me out here. I really need to do something, but I don't know what to do. So they spent seven months. It was a slow process, figuring out what to do. And they came up with this idea of undivided, right? Undivided, maybe indivisible, undivided. And uh, they created a six-week program explicitly focused on racial reconciliation inside this large, fastest-growing evangelical church. Over 1,200 members of this church were trained, and they launched a program in 2016 of training this. And from this 1,200 people, 750 volunteers emerged to form what is called the Justice Team. And there was the whole message, talking about your point around action, Lily, was about this is our faith, but how do we put our faith into action? What will it mean to, to do that? And they started being powerful. They had this temper. Some of these big leaders who are like you know, skidding in their tracks heard about this and said, maybe we can get some help from them. So they went to Troy Jackson and said, can you basically get your people to help us behind this preschool initiative? And Troy said, OK, but here's the deal. They have a, I I forgot to tell you, they come up with a people's platform of four ideas. That has to be the starting point. And two, if you want to do this, we have to do this in a way where you actually engage with the constituency. So you, Mr. CEO of Procter & Gamble, and you, you know, you come to our place and you talk not just to me, but you talk to them. And so they came, literally, in 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 these Baptist churches and so on, and started talking and had to listen to these people talk about everyday life and what was going on. And what what happened is, so for example, the the people's platform said, the way we're going to finance this is not a bunch of CSR. We're going to have a progressive income tax. The business leaders said, no way. We, you know, business tax, you know, it'll kill business. We, you know, no progressive income tax. But through this negotiation, you know, and they wanted no tax. They basically settled on a property tax, which was progressive in the sense that, of course, richer people have to pay much more of this. Uh, again, for time I'll just kind of skip, but basically this tax got passed, uh, and not only, not only did that happen, but the elite coalition, the business, agreed to all other aspects of this people's platform. That included, for example, a minimum wage of $15 and a number of other progressive, progressive measures. So what i want to say in conclusion, what Amos achieved through this approach are the following. One, they won the, they won the battle, they got the tax and they got preschool funding. But the way they did it, and I think this is the key, they conscientized a low-income, marginalized constituency on the issue. They developed positions on the issue. They figured out a pathway to action. They developed the skills to do that. They were able to organize among themselves. They were able to actually also engage with the CEOs. They got to experience that sense of agency. Um, the key word here, I think, is they were not mobilized. They were organized, and we can talk about that distinction, because I think it's useful. Um, this constituency got visibility and recognition, and you, they built a vehicle through this action to create a coalition across black, white, but also across elites and, and uh, low income that came together to win this. So I wonder when I hear this story, and I was, when I was doing work like this at Ford, I was wondering what if we had done the work on learning outcomes in this sort of way? Would it have made a difference? You know, I don't know, but I wonder. And, of course, what this group has succeeded in doing is raising money. Raising money is what we also managed to do in Tanzania for education. Raising money is one thing, improving learning outcomes is another. So I'm curious, will this coalition being in place somehow be better at actually achieving the outcomes or not? These are some of the, the questions we have. And to close with what should students do, I really think the one thing students should do is absolutely personally get engaged in organizing themselves. It doesn't matter. I don't care what the issue is, but you do that yourself, and and I, and uh, that'll teach you, you know, heck of a lot more than just what uh, mm. Matt and others are going to teach you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank right. you very much. Before I open it up for questions, I just had a question each for for each of you, Alice. Um, you talked about some things that the students should do is teach them how to work with diversity how exactly does one do that right that's your question I'll ask all of you your questions and then you can answer Lily to you you talked about you know you have to mobilize elites what are some concrete things that one can do even if you're working on citizen engagement of of thinking about how you can mobilize the elites, whether they be political elites or others. What are some concrete things that you can do? Rakesh, you kind of answered the question I had for you. As you were telling the Cincinnati story, which is a fantastic story, at the back of my head was going, what could they have done differently at Tuaweza? And can you just think of some things that you could have to create the vehicle, right? Have these feet on the ground to change people so that had the next president come in and said, I'm putting this off, people would have been on the street saying, no way,
2: you can't touch this. Alex. So two things. One, in my teaching, I try to highlight the benefits of interdisciplinary thinking, like highlighting anthropological and political science insights, then always my reading lists are diverse to highlight different people's, you know, the benefits of learning from diverse groups. So one is to show that diversity through the classroom tuition. But I think that Rakesh is 100% correct that most of what we learn about the real world comes through our own observations and our own experiences. So to get students engaged in understanding on how to work with diversity, you know, do whatever campaign you like, whether it's a climate change campaign, a sexual harassment campaign, go out and campaign. And in that process, you'll realize you'll achieve a hell of a lot more if you work with a whole bunch of different groups. So just what,
3: what Rakesh says, really. <laughs> Great. Thank you. No, I just yeah, want to point good. out that <laughs> when I was asked to be on this panel, and it was just about mobilizing elites... I said no because I that's not as much that's not my area of expertise and you've like given me that question. <laughs> no, so. but you made a really good point when you spoke, right saying that you do. It's
1: pump you know like pump, the pump, yeah. the pump but and they're right, on the other side right, that right. you kind of do
3: need to. so, so I, I guess what I would say is that um, when um, an external actor or even citizens can reduce the costs of governance to the elite, so you have to think about what the governance outcomes they want are and sometimes it's Tax compliance or um, another kind of compliance. If you can cut a deal, if you could figure out a deal where, um, and so actually, actually, I, I will say a little bit about this um, Philippines civil society organization that we sure. work with. Um, so they um, they put together a pilot program that would be inserted into the Philippines' conditional cash transfer program, which is one of the biggest in the world. And um, and what they wanted to do was to train. Um, People among the poorest of the poor, the, the beneficiaries of the CCT program, um, to pressure local governments for better education and health. And the reason they could do that was because the cash transfer cash transfer program comes with them the requirements that you have to take your kids to get their vaccinations, and they have to go to primary school in order to get the cash transfer. Um, so it was this nice kind of like piggybacking. Um, so, um, so what they proposed to the government was that what the civil society organization proposed was that, you know what, we'll help you monitor the conditionalities. We'll help, you com- we'll help you monitor compliance with the conditionalities. And in exchange, we're gonna train these leaders to pressure local officials. And so that, that was a good enough deal, right? Because there's limited state capacity and if the CSO can offer the government um, a service, essentially, that they need to accomplish, then um, elites could potentially be mobilized.
1: Yeah, and I really like your comment on the revolving door between civil society and, and government. It's a very nice image to Rakesh.
0: The right wing in this country are masters at that. They do a really great job. And they are. And that's part of the reason they are yeah. so successful. Um, I, I think um, one, of, one of many um, mistakes I made was um, I just kind of assumed that people would self-organize. Mm. Uh, and you would kind of have this, you know, I had this notion like if you look at the, from Catholic Church. They have these you know, Bible studies, and they organize, and their teachers meet, and there's a union, and yeah, it's weak, but they so there was this notion that people will somehow self-organize. Even though I knew that historically, that at independence the ruling party absorbed and co-opted everything, the workers' movement, the women's movement, the youth movement, every movement was co-opted and became part of the party. You were, there were sanctions against independent organizing. So the evidence of the history was very clear, And then unlike India and like Latin America, we, we, if you talk to East Africans, there's no real notion of organizing. And yet somehow I thought it'll, it'll kind of happen. And we had, we had no capacity, but neither did we try to, to, to have a theory of organizing. And I think that, that was the biggest, biggest weakness. Uh, the, the other thing I think what put us off is I, again, I take this one, is that I, conf- I made a mistake around, I cared about scale. My worry was not creating little boutique mm-hmm. projects. Anybody can create a boutique project. Mm. But it was more on. so if you want to have impact at scale, I just was like, how are you going to organize for millions? I, mm-hmm. I don't know how to mm-hmm. do that. But that's a mistake. It's not as if you have to have an organizing uh, infrastructure that is huge in order to reach huge numbers of people. You can, if you look, again, if one had studied more, you see that often these movements start with small, very focused ideas and leadership. And So we could have pulled it off if we had just been smart enough and got our act together.
2: May I just say one thing to tie Lily and and Rakesh's points together? So like Lily was saying, is that people are more likely to mobilize when they perceive the state as responsive, Mm -hmm. as tolerant, as capable, and it's nonviolent. So what we've seen from the research on transparencies is it's no good just providing information about financial flows and expecting people to mobilize in response mm. to poor learning outcomes. They have to believe that the state will do something in response to their organizing. So it's all about publicizing that state responsiveness wherever it's happening mm. and through that you know, hopefully provide incredible reasons for hope right. and showing in one district that the state is being responsive and that encouraging more people. So there's this uh, great new book on India highlighting that Gabby Krizna, which shows that people... Mm-hmm. W- a student of mine. Oh, right. <laughs> right, so she's... She, she's I will got, tell her. <laughs> <great new book.
3: laughs>
2: she, she's got this book on, and this world, world politics paper on how... Rural Indians are more likely to mobilise, to push for better services if they've got broader social networks or spatial diversity where they see the state doing that. So when they go and travel and they see the state in action, they're like, ha, I can get that too. I'll push for that back home. So it's that small process of generating positive feedback loops, shifting people's expectations about how the state will respond. And that, of course, as more people push for accountability, then we get into the sweet spot of a positive feedback loop.
0: Thank Can I you. piggyback on and tell you yes, an anecdote? Yes, absolutely. So I did a lot of work around open government and accountability, and there was a time I, was, I had access to President Kikwete around that. And I would, I, when I'd meet him, I would make a long list of, look, this is not working, this promise is not working, and, and I would give him lots of data on what needed to improve, and he would listen and so on. And after about the third or fourth meeting, he would say, he'd say, Rakesh, let me tell you a story. When I wake up in the morning and my wife of many years looks at me, you know, She might think I'm now much older, my face skin is not as fresh as it used to be, but she doesn't tell me. Oh, you don't look as handsome as you used to. Look, she tells me, I just love you so much. And then she tells me what she wants. <laughs> you know, and so, so if, even if the government is being non responsive 99% of the time, if you focus, if I spent my time now, if I could rewind, if I spent my time telling Kiwete this little thing in that part, that, that was really cool, you know? Yeah. And, and then maybe that would have motivated for those things rather than the long litany of what was failing.
1: Great, I want to add another anecdote to yours. And this is from Asser, Rukmini yeah, Banerjee, where Uwezo yeah. got this idea from. And so they've been doing this like testing on learning outcomes for decades, for a, de- a, de- a decade. They did this one year where they did a multitude of things. So they did health, they did education, and they did water and sanitation. They actually did water tests, et cetera. So it was like looking at three different sectors, and then they collected this data and then talked to the district officials. And what they found, and Rukmini told me this herself, it was a game changer in the reaction they got from the government officials at at the district level because they said, now you're telling me a story about things I care about, what is my quality, and we can have a conversation about maybe thinking about what I can do about this. Because when you come in and you tell me that the children aren't learning at the, you know, they can't do fourth, at fourth grade, they can't even do first grade level math, then that, I know this. Don't tell me something I don't know. Come to me and tell me what I can do about it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is really important, right? A lot of these people, they don't have the rose-colored lenses. They know things aren't working. Mm-hmm. But what they would really like is a how-to. You know, maybe you could try this, maybe this. Just pointing fingers at them telling them that you're doing a crap job isn't really helpful to anybody, mm-hmm. so I totally agree.
0: If you want to learn more about CID's research and events, please visit cid.harvard.edu. See you next week.